I would invite you to take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Amos. As a church, we have been walking through this summer the Old Testament, a couple of the Old Testament minor prophets. First started out with Habakkuk. And this morning, we are going to continue our study in the book of Amos. Um, specifically, um, we have some big kind of chunks of scripture to, to, to walk through, but we're going to focus our time really this week. It was supposed to be five and six, but I'm going to really just focus on chapter five, verses 18 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them and you will be served greatly if you keep them open throughout the service and refer to them as, um, as I'm speaking, just to make sure what I'm saying is actually what is in God's word. So this is Amos. I'm going to read it for us. I'll pray and then we'll dive right in. Okay. This is Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom? With no brightness in it, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not Listen, but let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images that you made yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord whose name is the God of hosts. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we approach your word, I pray that you would help us to see it as you intended it to be. Lord, we believe this book that is resting in our hands to be your eternal truth. And our prayer is simple this morning. Lord, we ask that you would take this word and that you would write it on our hearts, Father, that we may be a people who follow you in faithfulness, obedience, and love. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Darius McCollum grew up in New York City. As a young boy, he acquired a particular fascination for all things transit-related. Trains, buses, the subway system of New York. And, and as a child, he developed an encyclopedic knowledge of everything related to transportation in the city. Throughout his life, he would drive over a hundred buses and numerous trains that were operated by the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority. However, there's one problem. That problem is Darius McCollum never worked for the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Drove 100 buses, multiple trains, but never once was an authorized employee of the department. He would dress up 
as a bus driver, as a train conductor, full uniform, MTA badge, and he would find, look for strategic opportunities where he could commandeer his vehicle of choice. He would make all of the stops on time. He would make all of the announcements as he should. There were times that throughout this reign of terror on the transit authority, that New York subway system was littered with posters of his face, warning passengers to report any sighting of him. Darius, now I think in his 50s, maybe early 60s, has spent over one-third of his life behind bars for transit-related crimes. Although what's unique about this criminal is that we're really no victims of his crimes, right? His crime was simple, acting like someone he was not. And this crime came with serious, serious consequences. Folks, it is a similar crime that we see the people of Israel throughout the book of Amos are guilty of committing. Israel was in the business of acting, of acting. They were God's chosen people. We saw this last week that they were privileged people with God's word. They had been delivered from bondage. They, God had set them apart as his chosen covenant people. They were a people who were to be devoted to their God. Their love for God and for his people should have worked its way out, impacting the very social order of their world, reflecting God's goodness for the nations to see. Yet, here they are in Amos some 800 years before Christ, and they are dressed up in religion while their hearts are far from God. If you remember, Amos prophesied, like I said, some 800 years before Christ came. And it was during this unique time of the kingdom. It was a divided kingdom, right? We have King Uzziah in the south in Judah and Jeroboam II was in north in Israel. Both of these kings reigned for some 40 years. And during their reign, the kingdom was characterized by material affluence and political expansion. And really, affluence and expansion that the kingdom had not seen since the reigns of David and Solomon. And people were interpreting the success of the country, the, 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 the prosperity of the nation as a sign of God's favor. Our words here this morning should show us that they could not be more wrong in their interpretation. Rather, they were a country, they were a nation that was characterized by moral decay and religious hypocrisy. Amos's message, God's message through the prophet of Amos comes to God's people with simple message. It is, time is up. The time has come. This shepherd, Amos, a shepherd, a, a farmer of sycamore trees, was sent from Judah in the south to Israel in the north with one message. What's unique about this book, and you may pick up on it as we begin to preach it, as we continue to preach the book, is that really there's just one message throughout the book. It's unique in that sense. It has one message. Many of you may be familiar with Eugene Peterson, the, the beloved pastor and the prolific author who wrote The Message, the, the, the Bible, The Message. He passed away, I think, about a year ago. And, and one of
of the things that Eugene Peterson had said in one of his writings was that his son, who had gone away to college to, to study creative writing, came back, and his son came back just lit up with all of the things, everything literary related. And one of the things that he would talk about is how, how authors, really, really good authors, really just write one book, right? William Faulkner, Ann Tyler, Ernest Hemingway, Charles Dickens, these are all fantastic authors who really just write one book over and over again. What he was ultimately saying to his father, the beloved pastor and writer, was that really when Eugene Peterson was at his best, he was preaching one message over and over again. What we see in the book of Amos is the exact same reality. One message over and over again. Israel, and it's this, Israel had become a nation of religious apostasy, moral and social decay and political corruption, and God was going to judge them. He was going to judge them. They had drifted from the God of the covenant. They had drifted from their first love. And Amos' words come to the nation of Israel as an opportunity to repent, to return to God, and to re reset their religion. In the passage before us today, we see God ultimately is doing three things in an attempt to allow Israel to reset their religion. He's inviting his people back to himself three different ways. The first thing that we'll see in verses 18 and verses 20 is that God confronts their reality. He confronts their perception, their understanding of reality. You see this right away in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, we haven't talked much about this concept of the day of the Lord Although it is the central theme of books like Joel and Zephaniah, other minor prophets, it will go on to be a major theme for New Testament writers. It appears here first in Amos. It was a future day when Israel's true mighty king would arrive to fight on her behalf and exact vengeance on all her enemies. On that day, God's wrath would be poured out on all the, nation, all the nations who opposed Israel. His victory would mean death and disaster for the wicked. And for the faithful, on that day, they would be rescued from ruin, protected from peril, and exalted in all the earth. It was part of popular expectation that the day of the Lord would come with joy and the brightness of light for Israel. Things would be as they should be. And as a result, these people longed for that day to come. We're told in the text that they desired the day of the Lord. They wanted it here, now. But Amos warns them that their hope has been misplaced. They actually should not be longing for the day of the Lord. Why not? See, these are a people who thought that they are right, that they were right with God and that they were safe from his wrath. When in fact, what we learn is that they were enemies of God and would become objects of his wrath. Their hope wasn't secure and their future was not bright. Amos brings this point home with a illustration, sort of a wily e. Coyote-esque illustration you will see. I'll read it again just in case you didn't catch it the first time. 
It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion, and a bear met him, went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. So the image is of a man who sees a lion, is terrified, and so like any of us, People would do it, you know, for the interest of preserving our life, turns the opposite direction and runs away from the lion. But lo and behold, as we run, we find out that there's a massive bear in our path. Oh, what are we to do? Oh, look, there's a desolate, derelict home. Let's quick avoid disaster by running into this home. Then in a moment of relief, we find ourselves catching our breath, leaning our hand against the wall when what do you know? Out from the window comes a serpent and bites you on the hand. It would be a humorous story if it were not true. The point is simple. Judgment is coming for you, Israel, and no matter what you do, you will not be able to escape it. It's coming for you. Through Amos, God confronts their understanding of reality. His words would have not only been totally unwelcome, but also completely perplexing. Perplexing. There it is. They think that they are right with the Lord, right? They have no shortage of religious activity. They are in a moment of history that is characterized by economic prosperity. What do they have to be running from, right? Aren't they on the right side of God's judgment? Amos says, actually, no. You are on the wrong side of his judgment. Folks, I wonder how many of us today struggle with a similar misconception of reality. As we long for the Lord to return, how many of us are convinced that we will be on the right side of God's judgment, the right side of his wrath, right? What Amos is begging the nation of Israel to do is the same thing that Jesus himself begged of us to do when he came and said, listen, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, for I do not know you, you workers of lawlessness, right? Many of us, every single one of us, regardless of your pedigree, regardless of what you bring to the table, every one of us would do well to be in constant evaluation of the state of our heart, asking the question, how will the Lord receive me when he returns? What side of his judgment will I be on? Every single one of us need to be confronted in our understanding of reality. And it's the first thing that we see Amos do, that God does through Amos here, to provoke his people and to proclaim his message. The second thing that we see, and we see this in verses 21 through 23, is that not just does he confront their reality, he also condemns their religion. He condemns their religion. It's a strong word, but I think it's a fitting word, and I think it is what is happening. We see it in verses 21 through 23, if you would look there. In these verses, God methodically goes through each element of Israel's worship, and bit by bit, element by element, he rejects it. He condemns it. 
First, he starts off with feasts. We see this in 21. The Old Testament designated feasts. They were annual festivals of unleavened bread or the Passover, weeks of harvest, or the, 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 the festival of the tabernacles, oftentimes referred to as the, the Feast of Booths. Whether the northern kingdom actually followed this calendar is uncertain, but there were festivals that were similar in nature. And as they gather to participate in these festivities, as God looks on them, his response is, actually, when you think you're doing those to delight me, I actually despise them. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. He also condemns their solemn assemblies in verse 21. They gathered corporately as a people, and it wasn't as though they had stopped meeting. See, this is important. They didn't just altogether abandon their religion. They didn't altogether abandon their ceremonies. They gathered corporately as a people. And it was that God was, dis, was not pleased when they did. It wasn't that he was unpleased because they didn't gather. It was the fact that they were gathering as he looked upon them. He was unpleased because of it. The word says, I take no delight. Literally, the Hebrew means I cannot stand the stench, the smell of your solemn Assemblies, their offerings and their sacrifices. The Old Testament system was filled with a sacrificial system, one offering after another. There were five in total. He lists three specifically here: burnt grain and peace. They are these ones specifically. These three were referred to as the pleasing aroma offerings, sacrifices that represented consecration and worship. The other two were specifically designated for atonement. And as God looks at these three offerings, he says, I will not look upon them. I will turn my eyes, I will shut my eyes and turn my head away from them. I don't want to even see them. Also, their music, singing, playing instruments was a common part of their gathering as a people. Standard forms of praise. Yet the song that they sang wasn't regarded as a beautiful melody like what we just saw up here on the stage. Rather, as a noise. He says, I will not listen to your song. Folks, these people were locked in the program of religion. But they had totally rejected the person. In chapter 5 earlier, we didn't see this, but three times Amos calls for them. God, through Amos, calls them to seek me and live. Verse 4 and 5. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And again in verse 14, seek good and not evil. God's desire is for us to be a people who long for him. They have, in fact, even though they're clothed in religion, they have rejected the person that they are supposed to be worshiping. You see this later in verse 26 and 27. You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kaiyuan, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. People had even brought in foreign gods to their worship services. Assyrian gods, the very kingdom that will be, God's judgment will be coming to them. They are worshiping their gods in their corporate gathering. This is a major problem. There's no shortage of religious activity, right? Ultimately, he is rejecting them because they have steeped themselves in religiosity and ceremonies and all these types of things while rejecting the God of the religion. And that's a major, major problem. Now, I want you to notice God does not issue some blanket condemnation of all forms 
of public worship. Public worship is a beautiful, it is an integral to, to life as a follower of Jesus. Some have gone there, they've used passages like this throughout scripture to, to minimize the importance of gathering as God's people. Amos 5 is not an excuse, an opportunity to, for, for one to excuse yourself from the corporate dimension of your spiritual life. He, he doesn't use Amos 5, we should not use Amos 5 as an opportunity to minimize the corporate nature of our faith and to live individualistic Christian lives. God, it's important to note, God does not reject or condemn corporate worship in this passage. He is rejecting their corporate worship. Look at the text. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, and I won't accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The problem isn't they're, that they're worshiping corporately, it's how they're doing it. Their unique way of approaching God. Only words of rejection and condemnation greeted the prophet's audience as he spoke of element after element of their corporate worship. And all of their religious business and all of their ceremonial activity, folks, Israel was acting the part. Something was missing. Something so important that it would cause God to turn away from his people. He could not even look at their gatherings. The missing ingredient in their worship ultimately was a lifestyle of devotion to God expressed by love of God and a love for his people. Folks, Israel was guilty of compartmentalizing their lives. Their religion had become so privatized so privatized that the expression of their faith was reserved and relocated to their feasts and their assemblies. No sign of their faith was active in their community. And that's a major, major problem. Their faith wasn't at work restoring relationships and transforming the moral fabric of their culture. They, they relegated it to the private sphere of their life. It didn't impact the way they conducted businesses. It, their faith did not impact the way that they married, the way that they raised their children, the way that they treated their neighbor. And as a result, God condemned it. He condemned it. He completely rejected it. Folks, if you want to know that these people worshiped God he didn't design it that you should have to follow them into a church service to know that they were a worshiper of the living God. And the same is exactly true for us today. If people are to know that you have given your life to the Lord, that you have been radically transformed by the power of the gospel, they shouldn't have to follow you to church to know that, right? They should see your faith at work on display Monday through Sunday. Every day of the week, the way that you conduct your business, the way that you treat your family, the way that you treat and care for your friends or those who are different than you, the strangers, the foreigners, the way that you welcome one another into your presence. 
right? Those, those are the opportunities that we ultimately have to put God's glory on display for the world to see. What we do when we enter this room on a Sunday morning should be an expression of what is in our hearts and practiced in our lives. Israel's rejection of justice and righteousness in the social order made inevitable God's rejection of their worship activities. So the third thing that we see is that God doesn't just confront the reality. He doesn't just condemn their religion. But third is he calls them to righteousness. You go throughout the book of Amos and you will see one unjust practice after another. The upper class abused the underprivileged. We see this in chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. Upper class gained and maintained their status, status through violence. See this in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. While they crushed the poor, chapter 4, verse 1. While they imposed heavy taxes, chapter 5, verse 11. The situation was so bad that the poor had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off debt. Chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. While the rich padded their pockets through falsified weights and dishonest trade. Chapter 8, verse 6. Even the courts, the place that should have been the last bastion of hope for the poor, was corrupt. The judges were bribed to cheat the poor. See it in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 10, 12. Israel had become a people who were no longer capable of executing justice because they no longer valued truth and honesty. Chapter 5, verse 10. Ultimately, the nation of Israel had abandoned God's moral and ethical standard and replaced it with their own, which I might point out was rather self-serving. Folks, God has a different vision for how life should look in Israel, to be sure. God demands, see it in chapter 4, his answer to this condemnation of religion is chapter 24. But the opposite of all of that, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's his solution. That's what he requires from his people. Because of its life-giving power, water has absolutely always been treated with great, as, as, as a great and valued resource, especially in the ancient Near East, where it would have often been scarce. Just as one could not expect to survive without the precious flow of water, so the nation would not survive apart from a return to justice and the pursuit of righteousness. What an amazing, an amazing vision. It's a, a vision, it's a call that we see, quite honestly, all throughout Scripture. It, it's a vision that every single one of us should long for in our lives, in our community, and throughout our world. We see in verse 15 before this that God commands them that they should hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. They should be a society void. The vision is that God is, is, longs for a society that is void of oppression. 
exploitation. No more taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. No more getting ahead in life while trampling on the backs of those who have no money, no voice, and oftentimes no opportunity. It's God's vision. It's God's vision. How do you pursue justice? Be honest with you, that is a tricky, tricky question. It's a tricky question. As a church, I think a good starting place is that we produce, as a people, men and women whose hearts and whose lives are aflame for the righteousness of God. If you see over and over again in the Old Testament, these words justice and righteousness are together in sort of what's called a couplet, right? And you can't ultimately pursue biblical justice if you don't first understand that God has a moral, ethical standard that he calls righteousness. And as a church, we give ourselves to pursuing this righteousness, to be a, be a people, men and women who embody this righteousness wherever we go. A righteousness that's authentic, that cannot be faked, cannot be dressed up with a badge and a uniform, but one that is absolutely authentic and reveals the internal reality that our hearts have been transformed by the gospel. It's also a righteousness that should be active. It should be authentic and it should be active. Present in the warp and woof of all of our life. Monday through Sunday. Regardless of what situation we find ourselves in. God's standard doesn't change. Okay? He has a moral and an ethical standard. And our obligation, what he wants from us is to pursue obedience in him, towards that standard. And so many, what I love about this church is so many of you worship at Parkview East because you want to participate in that. You want to participate. You see that things are maybe not as they should be in our community and you want to take the gospel and let it shine a light into the darkest places of our community. Places that are characterized maybe by injustice, by, by social de moral decay. Folks, we are not, I want to say this to make it real clear, what we are not doing as a church as we proclaim the message of justice from the Bible is co-opting a popular cultural conversation as in an attempt to be relevant. That's not what's happening. Our primary concern is not being a relevant people. Our primary concern is being a textual people, Right? We don't want to take conversations that are happening in the world and figuring out how do we fold those into so we can get more folks in these seats and the concerns of the world become our concerns, okay? But we also don't want to not talk about things like social justice because everybody else has a different definition of what that means. We want to have a biblical understanding. What does God say when he means justice, right? What does God say when he calls us to righteousness? What is that standard? What is that understanding of morality? What does it look like? We can be tempted as we consider what things in our world and sort of the social fabric of our life should we be concerned with and should we value. And our temptation sort of especially in a, a politically polarized country right now, is to run to a political party or maybe a, a, a popular commentary and, and say, okay, what are the talking points? What are the things that I should value based on what that political party or that political commentator says? Folks, 
as a Christian people, as God's people, we run to this book. This is where our talking points come from. What God values is what we value. Our understanding of justice comes from this book. Okay? That's where we go to form our understanding. So much, and this is just, I think it's important to understand this. So much of the sort of secular understanding, the popular cultural understanding of, and desire for social justice, I mean, it's, it's, there's some areas where it gets really right and there's some areas where it gets it really wrong. And I'll just point out one. There's a really good, um, John Stott has a, a wonderful, it's an old book, but it's a really good one. It's called Involvement. And basically it helps Christians understand what is their social responsibility living in a non-Christian world. And what John Stott does is he says, listen, there's really, if you want to know, and this is something that every, quite honestly, generation and every couple of years you have to rethink. What does it mean to be a people who pursue justice, who are involved in the public life? What concerns do we, do we work towards and give our lives towards? And when we do, what does that look like? He says, you really need a really good doctrine. Okay, you need a fuller doctrine of who God is, who we are, who Christ is, what salvation is, and what the church is. Until you develop a real good doctrine of those five things, you're going to struggle. So if many of you find yourself sitting here this morning saying, I know I should be a just person. God is a just God. He cares about justice. I should too. And if you want to know what does that look like for me in Iowa City right now, 2019, what does that look like? This is our starting point. We start here and we develop an understanding of who God is, who we are, what salvation is, what Christ accomplished, and what he requires from the church. Okay, that's where we start. Now, where the social justice conversation is, I just want to point out one of those doctrines where it kind of gets it wrong. Okay? And th this is the current sort of cultural conversation of social justice. And what gets, where it gets it wrong is it, it has a misplaced trust. A trust in a particular group of people. The problem in the world is that the wrong people have the power. The wrong people have dominance. And if power were to simply change hands into another group of people's hands, things would look totally different, right? The problem with that, now there is, is there some truth to that? Absolutely. The problem is that, is that it's built on a faulty anthropology, a faulty doctrine of man, a misplaced trust in our own selves, Right? Isaiah 64, 6 makes it very, very clear. We, every single one of us, is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, even our very best, right? We might give ourselves to the noblest of causes, but even us at our best is still not good enough. Even our righteousness, he says, is like filthy rags. It's not righteous enough. See, folks, even if you look inside your own heart, every single one of us this morning, and we may, we may give ourselves to really noble, really good tasks, really good things. We may spend time and time and energy and resources correcting things in our world that are broken and wrong, and we should. He commands us to, to apply the gospel wherever we go. But if we just evaluate our own heart, no matter how noble the task is that we give ourselves, we still are confronted with our own sin, right? We may give ourselves to really good, noble tasks, but man, 
our marriage is really on the rocks because we say one stupid thing after another. My bank account is not reflecting what God is doing and wants to do through me. It's, re it's reflecting what I want for myself, right? We, we look at the neighbor and see their life and in us, enviness and covetousness begins to grow. Every single one of us is a conflicted person. You know, I saw this right away when I got married. Maybe you maybe can say yes and amen to this, right? I th and I say this often. I thought I was a pretty good dude, right? I spent lots of time doing what I thought was really good things, right? I gave myself to ministry, found out how can I, how can I do much of this that the Bible commands us to do, right? Well, as soon as I got close to another person, it didn't have to get too close. And all of a sudden I began to see I was an incredibly selfish jerk, dare I say, right? Then once we started having a couple of kids, guess what? My understanding of my wickedness began to grow. And it does every day, okay? Every single one of us is a conflicted person. Every single one of us. If you study people, even the greatest people throughout history, one of my favorite books, and I can remember, I was in junior high, I was in seventh grade, I was not a reader. Still, reading is a difficult thing for me sometimes. But I opened up a book, and it was Malcolm X's Autobiography by Alex Haley. Now, this book radically changed my life. And one of the things, it's one of the books that I make my older my old boys have read. I think Zach is still working through it and hasn't finished it quite yet. But one of the reasons that I love this book is because you see this conflicted nature on display. You see so much good in a man, but then you also see some wickedness and some sin present in his life. Folks, there's not a person in history. You can go back, presidents, it don't matter who it is, as awesome, as much of a contribution as they have made to our society, they are still a conflicted person whose righteousness, even at their best, isn't good enough. Except for one. There's one person. There's one person who isn't conflicted. I think you know where I'm going with this. There's one person whose righteousness was good enough. Folks, that person, his name is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we see two things. And hallelujah, we see both these things. First thing we see is that in Christ, our righteousness is achieved. It's achieved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is super helpful here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Remember, he did not sin. Lived an entirely perfect life, void of sin. The life that every single one of us aspires to live. He did not sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Christ, we are clothed and seen as righteousness. We're clothed in his righteousness. The one who did not deserve to die, died on our behalf, right? So that you and I could be seen as righteousness. In Christ, our righteousness is achieved. Folks, but secondly, in Christ, our righteousness is also applied. It's also applied. We see this in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Christ, we see our righteousness is achieved and it's also applied. He calls us as his people, as image bearers of the creator of the universe to walk in righteousness, to follow the footsteps of Jesus, to receive and understand his moral and ethical standard and to pursue it in every aspect of our life. Right? 
every aspect of our life, to see the areas in our neighborhood, in our community that are broken, to see the deals that have gone wrong and where injustice has been rendered, and to be people who long for justice, who long for justice and desire to see righteousness cover our community. We are to be a people who apply his righteousness every single day of the week. And I wonder if you're doing that. I wonder, there's probably a good chance that there's many of us today who maybe avoid this topic honestly because we don't know how to navigate it. It's tricky, okay? It is not, the tricky nature of it is not an excuse to neglect it because I guarantee you what we see in Amos is it's incredibly important that you have a biblical understanding of justice. It's incredibly important. It's something that God takes seriously. You and I should too. My challenge to you this morning is to do a little evaluation of your life. Temptation can be, for all of us, to be really passionate and concerned about seeing this reality at play and work itself out in certain areas of our life while we neglect other areas of our life, where we don't want to see his righteousness and his justice. We don't want to see or pursue his standard. We want our own, okay? For you, it might be different. I want you to evaluate your life. How is God calling you in Amos 5 to be a person who wants to see justice and works towards it, to see justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Folks, this justice is not something that we can sort of manufacture on our own strength. Ultimately, for us to see this happen in our community, it requires us to be people who are on our knees crying out to God. Okay? As long as we walk this earth, we will see injustice. And as long as we see injustice, we will be a people who fights against it because God has a moral and ethical standard, and that's what we're pursuing in our life. If you were to just look back, I'll say this just in closing. If you were to look back in history and see areas where the gospel really caught on and you could see revival break out, oftentimes those things, there's two things that you would see a lot of times is a lot of times you would see that a lot of it is led um, primarily first through prayer. First through prayer. If we want to see people, if we want to be a people who sees and values this, we cannot do it if we are not praying for the Lord to do it. Won't happen. If you see revival historically, it's rooted in a commitment to prayer. Okay? So, Practically speaking, next Sunday, at the end of every month, we are a people who gather at 9 o'clock to pray, to see this type of stuff happen, where it's hard to help us understand how do we do it. So I would invite you, next Sunday, 9 o'clock, before service here, come and pray for this. Pray for this. Second thing I would say is that we want to be a, a folk who, who talk and, and, and understand here you know, ask questions that we may not understand and navigate this world so we can come up with and we can see clearly what God is requiring from us, okay? One of the things that Wayne is kind of leading us in is uh, there's a book called When Helping Hurts. And we did kind of a first go-round a couple months ago uh, before service, and we're going to do kind of a reset of that class. Um, basically take some of those topics hash them out again, talk about them. How do we practically apply this book to the situations in our community? That's going to start in August. I believe August 4th is the first one for about three weeks, and that's before service. So if you want to just jump into this conversation, we invite you to do that, okay? 
All right, let me go ahead and pray for us. I would invite you to stand. I'll pray for us, and then we will have some worship. Yeah. Father God, thank you so much just for your word. Um, Lord, our hope and our prayer is that as a people, that we will be faithful to you and to your word, to what you call us to, Lord. Lord, oftentimes as we open up your word, we are confronted with messages that um, are perplexing and oftentimes can leave us feeling uncomfortable. Our sort of tendency in those moments is to retreat from what we don't understand and to, and, and to go back to what is comfortable for us, Lord. And I pray that you would allow us to be a people who navigate your word and, and search for truth and understanding for the sake of obedience. Help us to be a people who take things like justice and righteousness very, very seriously, Lord. Help each one of us to be able to see areas in our life, Lord, where, um, where this should be on display. Maybe areas where, um, where we need to be pursuing, Lord. So we love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.